Please pray with me. Lord, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Lord, I pray that you would take your word, which we have heard read now, and make it come alive in our hearing, that you would, would instruct our hearts on what it means to be a steward in your household, a leader of your people. Lord, that those who are called to full-time ordained ministry and those who are called to full-time laity, Lord, will all receive a blessing by knowing your will for how we are to live our lives out in your household. Lord, these words are particularly convicting for me and for every other minister of your gospel. Have mercy on me, Lord, and equip me to preach it now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in a sermon series on 1 Timothy, and we've been calling that keep, uh, Keeping Christianity Weird. And there's not really a lot weird in this 1 Timothy 3 passage, except for the fact that anytime we talk about leadership as being a type of servant role, it's going to be weird for our culture to hear that. Because the models that we see of, of leadership in our culture don't exalt servanthood as a model for leadership. In fact, I, I'm just thinking of, oh, just random presidential candidates um, that sometimes I think that they think it's about bluster and bossing people around and calling names as opposed to serving people. But I'll just let your imagination run wild with that, and you can fill in the blanks. But I want to do a couple of things today as we, as we talk about this reading from 1 Timothy and then the reading from Matthew. These readings deal with the character of leadership in the household of God, leadership in the household of God. It's a perennial issue for us. It's absolutely, cru- the, the longer I live, the more I see the importance of uh, the character of leaders. Leaders really matter, and the character of leaders really matters to the people that they lead. Now, by way of introduction, I want to do a couple things. First of all, um, what kind of leader, I need to talk about what kind of leader is Paul talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then what I want to do is just after we talk about what kind of leader he's talking about, I want us to turn our text, our attention to the gospel text from Matthew 23 and see how that informs our understanding of Christian leadership. So, to quote uh, Patrick Henry Reardon, uh, uh, Antiochian Orthodox uh, writer and, and uh, priest, he says this. He says, the overseers, episkopoi, which is the Greek plural form, in this text seem not to have been bishops as that word came to be used near the year 100 and has been used ever since. That is to say, when the New Testament uses the word episkopos, the word does not appear to refer to the monarchical episcopate as the Christian church has traditionally designated that office. What do we mean by a monarchical episcopate? That's a mouthful. I'm surprised I was even able to say that. Well, that's one we talk, you know, uh, you know, the bishops that have the pointy hats with the mud flaps um, and, the, and, and the stick, you know, that's the kind of the monarchical uh, bishop that we're, we're thinking about there. There's nothing intrinsically wrong about that because actually that's the role Timothy and Titus are playing in these pastoral epistles. They're, they're carrying out that role as spokespersons for the apostles. But to continue with what, what uh, Reardon says here, he says, when the word episkopos is used in the New Testament, it has the same reference as elder or presbyteros, the term that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 19. Now, by the way, that word, we, that word presbyteros, uh, is just, it just simply means old guy. You know, I'm wearing these 
these half-moon glasses, uh, not because I'm channeling my inner Dumbledore, um, but because actually uh, I have presbyopia, old eyes. And so that means I just need these to see things close up. And let me tell you what, just you, you young people, you need to know this. When you hit 40, boom, it happens. It's like I woke up one day and I said, I got to get me some of those old guy glasses. So all presbyter means, presbyteros means old guy. Indeed, uh, carrying on here in Titus 1 and Acts chapter 20, both words, episcopoi and presbyteroi, are used interchangeably to refer to the identical persons. In the present passage, then, Paul was referring not to bishops in the later sense, but to those ministers whom we have traditionally called priests, a term derived direct, directly from the Greek word presbyteros. That's right. If you, it's not scary to refer to your pastor as a priest because you're just using the shortened word for old guy. And I really fit that role now, so that's a good thing. I feel so, so appropriate. <laughs> Now, so what does the gospel reading have to do, have to say about overseeing presbyters? These, these persons, I guess we might call them senior pastors. In Matthew 23, we read about Jesus' confrontation with the corrupt religious leaders of his day. And these words, therefore, help to serve to guide and reform our understanding of church leadership in our own day as well. In order, to, though, to understand this teaching of our Lord, we're going to have to pl- apply a basic biblical principle of biblical interpretation that really get, gets exalted during the time of the Reformation period. And that is we're going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. How do you understand Scripture? Well, you interpret Scripture, first of all, through Scripture. And that's going to be our lens for taking these passages apart and seeing what the Lord would have to say with us in here. So what does Jesus teach about leadership, headship leadership in the church in this passage? Well, first of all, we know one thing that Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not abolishing the role of human leadership among the people of God. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. So the problem is not that the church has human leadership. It's not that we should, as some people have erroneously, I mean, I I come across this uh, occasionally on the internet where um, some people are radical and untraditioned People say, we should just abolish. There's there's no such thing as ordained clergy. And I'm just thinking, what Bible are you reading? And we should just abolish all ordained clergy. That might be a very good principle for an egalitarian, democratic people in like the United States. You know, we like that kind of stuff. Let's abolish any kind of, of, you know, I I think this is really the, the motto of the United States. It's not in God we trust. It actually is, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. So, uh, so I know there's that, there is that impulse uh, in our culture, but that's not what Jesus is doing. We're not, he's not, he certainly doesn't abolish ordained clergy. Instead, we see here the importance of set-apart leaders, not just here, but throughout the New Testament. In all four Gospels, Jesus himself called and ordained, called and ordained 12 apostles. So he certainly thinks leadership is important. In Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23, the Bible tells us that Paul and Barnabas appointed presbyters as they revisited, revisited the churches that they planted throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we just read, Paul instructs Timothy about the qualifications required for those to be ordained overseeing presbyters in the church. And in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, Paul instructs Timothy concerning those presbyters. He says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. In in a letter to another helper, the letter called Titus to his helper Titus, Paul reminds Titus, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint presbyters in every town as I directed you. And perhaps the most alien thing to our egalitarian ears is the passage from Hebrews 13 verse 7 concerning their set-apart ministers. The writer of Hebrews encourages Christians to do this. He says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will, not, will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we know by Scripture, informing Scripture, that Jesus is not condemning the existence of leaders in the household of God. What he does call out, what he does rebuke, is their corruption. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy burdens and put them on people's shoulders, that, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. So what is going on here? Well, Jesus is doing this. Listen, he is condemning hypocrisy in leadership. He is condemning hypocrisy in leadership. They don't practice what they preach. You thought that was just a turn of phrase? Jesus coined it. Hypocrisy literally means to wear a mask. It's a term that comes to us from the Greek theater. You remember those, you know, maybe you were in drama club in high school, or, or uh, you remember those masks, the, the smiley face mask, and then the frowny face mask, you know, and that's sort of the symbol of drama, right? Well, those masks actually come from Greek antiquity, where actors would wear masks. And so to be a hypocrite is to wear a mask. It is literally to pretend to be something that you are not. And so that's what the word hypocrisy means. And hypocrisy is a universally loathsome vice. It is a hateful vice. And everybody knows it when they see it. Children seem especially attuned and and will call out hypocrisy. They They do it innocently. They don't know that we're supposed to not notice that hypocrisy, but they'll speak right up about it. You know, I've... I've, uh, I've said that hypocrisy, and speaking as someone with some experience in this, that hypocrisy is the, is the moral equivalent of a comb-over. <laughs> it doesn't fool anybody, but it just makes you feel better about yourself. You know, it is vital to note that Jesus immediately follows calling them out for not being practicers of what they preach. He follows that up immediately with his condemnation of their legalism. They tie up heavy, they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy burdens on men and women's shoulders, and they themselves will not lift a finger to help them. Legalism, listen, is the handmaiden of hypocrisy. 
The most legalistic people I have ever known are the most hypocritical people I have ever known. They go hand in hand. Where you find legalism, you will find hypocrisy. Oh, my goodness, I... You know, I'd, I'd, give you, I'd give you examples, but then I would insult somebody. I mean, you would think I was talking about someone you knew or something like that, but I, I, I think about, um, they don't go to this church, or at least they haven't for a long, long time. Uh, but I think about an individual who was really what I would call someone who was very condemning and hateful about uh, people who are same-sex attracted. And, uh, and so while we certainly don't approve of the practice, uh, we, we love and welcome everybody at Christ Church. But this guy, I would just say he was just homophobic. That's the only way to describe it. And, um, and I finally had to confront him and, uh, and bring church discipline because um, he'd been married four times. And yet he was calling out, homosexuals. Now, we don't agree with homosexual practice. We certainly love and welcome people who are same-sex uh, same sex attracted at Christ Church. People like that are here at Christ Church. But we also don't condone divorce and remarriage. And yet, he was, he was covering his own tainted history by being condemning to others. So that's kind of a, a poignant and, and painful thing to hear, I know. But I think we need, to put, we need to put an example to saying legalism and hypocrisy seem to go hand in hand. Well, what, what is legalism? Well, it's a religion based on a list of, of obligations, of the things that you're supposed to do and the things that you're not supposed to do. It's a religion of oughts. In legalism, you have to follow a certain set of rules in order to be a good person, and then God will like you. And if you don't follow all the right rules, God won't like you. In other words, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not based on grace at all. It's a, based on, it's, a, it's a religion of performance, both in the sense of I am an actor performing and also performance as in the sense of your job performance review. And that's exactly the kind of uh, religion the teachers of the law were endorsing. But legalism quickly, and we see it in this passage, quickly shifts all the obligations to the people around us. They put burdens on men's backs while then excusing themselves. Legalism is so preoccupied with how others are wrong, it is often blinded to its own faults. In fact, I would say that's probably one of its definitions. But in contrast, the kind of leadership that Jesus endorses is a leadership that leads by example, one that encourages and invites as opposed to one that obligates and condemns. Leaders that encourage and invite. You know, I, I love the way that um, it's been said by many people, and I, uh, Chuck Colson has said it. I think Father John Newhouse said it. Uh, others have said it. But here's the deal. The church... Um, the church does not force someone. It doesn't impose the truth. It proposes the truth. The church, we're not about imposing truth. We're about proposing truth. It's invitational by its very nature. Jesus said, uh, follow me. He didn't rugby tackle somebody and drag them. It's an invitation. 
So leadership that encourages and invites as opposed to leadership that obligates and condemns. No, you know, my least favoritest thing in the church is to make somebody make me feel guilty about not doing something. Oh, you got to come to this. You'll just let people down if you don't do that. Oh, that blesses my heart. No, anybody that, you want to disincentive someone, make them feel obligated and guilty if they're not doing it. But that's what legalism is. Instead, Jesus offers a type of leadership that is transformational. He calls people to holiness because in him they see the joy of holiness. Listen to me, that you don't condemn and guilt people into holy living. You show them, you reveal them the joy of being in the presence of God and being made holy by his holiness, and that involves people to walk in holiness and in new life. And the best example of that I can think of today is the feast day of St. Luke. So uh, Luke chapter 19, we hear the story of who? Zacchaeus, that wee little man, the wee little man that was he, you know. <laughs> you know the story maybe. is he's, he, was a, he was a really bad guy. He was a tax collector and he, he was preying on his own people. He was a Roman collaborator. He's robbed and pillaged widows' houses. You know, that's all the kind of stuff that tax collectors did. But he heard that Jesus was coming down. He couldn't see because he's short and the crowd is tall. He climbs up in a tree to see Jesus. This is ridiculous. And Jesus sees him and he says, Zacchaeus, you come down for I must stay at your house today. That when Jesus through his holy, when Jesus invited himself home by it's a sign of welcome and acceptance and love. When he invited himself home to be at Zacchaeus's house as a guest, Zacchaeus came down from the tree and he said, "Lord, here and now I give half of everything I own to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone anything, I pay them back four times." A leadership that invites and encourages and calls to holiness by being an example of joy. And that's what Christ calls his leaders to do. That's what godly presbyters and overseers do. Jesus condemns the religious leaders of his day because of their pride and ostentation. They Now look, when you hear this stuff about they love to make their phylacteries brawl. And their tassels on their garments long, you know, showing off uh, their religious accoutrement. Uh, that's French, y'all. Okay. So <laughs> we, we hear that, and then we look up at the front of our church, and there's Keith with the Holy Poncho of Antioch. <laughs> and Ben with not broad phylacteries, but he's got a broad stole on. How can you even read those words in this, in this service with all that get up on? Well, here's the deal. For the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the phylacteries were like little, um, they were leather straps with a little leather box. And in that little box was a scroll of the Torah. And they would have one on their hand. They still do this, and Orthodox Jews still do this today. And then they would tie the other one on their forehead. You know, I want the, the law to be in my hand and in my, and in my head and my forehead. So they tie those on. It was a sign of religious devotion. But they just upped it, you know, they just upped the ante. They, they wanted to show not just a little phylactery. No, I need a great big old phylactery because I am so holy and I am so pious. Behold my phylacteries. But the, here's the point and here's the distinction is those, the purpose for them doing that was to draw attention to who? To themselves. Here's the deal. And here's why, you know, we, by the way, there's no law that says, hey, you know, Anglican minister, you've got to wear an alb and a stole or an alb and a holy poncho or whatever. It's called a chasuble. Uh, what it, no, what these, what these vestments do is that they 
take the emphasis off the person and put it on the office. Now, we don't have time to talk about all of the meaning of all these vestments, but every one of them is supposed not to point to the individual because you know what? You didn't think about, wow, Ben's wearing a really nice, he's wearing a really nice suit and tie today. Look at that. That looks like a Ben Silver from Charleston, South Carolina tie. I have two of those. I would love for you to see my Ben Silver ties. But then you would think about how smart a dresser I was as opposed to thinking about the office instead of the person holding the office. The whole point of these vestments is to not direct your attention to the man or the person who is performing the religious service, but to point to the one to whom they serve. And so Jesus condemns the, the, the showmanship and the ostentation, things that are drawing attention away from the living God and drawing them onto themselves. That's what he is condemning here, and he says, look, you guys, you think being a leader is about getting the best parking space or getting invited to sit at the table with the important people at the banquets. But that's not what Christ-like headship is. What leaders in God's household are, they are self-forgetful and other-focused. And the thing that drove this Pharisee hypocrisy was that they were more motivated by something else other than God. Listen to what uh, John Boykin writes. He says, what is, so what is so bad about the Pharisees' hypocrisy? Well, if we think it, of it as consisting merely in their teaching or pretending one thing, while in fact practicing something contradictory, we will miss Jesus' main point. What he nailed them for was that they were using God and the things of God as a means to some other end. That's what is, was insidious about the Pharisees' example. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Theirs was a problem of priorities. Their first priority was social status, to which end God was but a means. What greater affront to God could there be? Better to ignore him altogether than to exploit him as a means to something else you value more highly. You know, Susan Jones uh, was a lecturer at Duke when I was teaching there a while back and as a preceptor. And uh, once she told me about a friend whose church had said goodbye to a much-loved minister of many years and had received a new pastor, and the, that match was not going well at all. It was not a good match. And on the way home from church one day, uh, the 13-year-old son of Susan's friend said this, I know what's wrong with Pastor Bob. He needs us to like him so much that we can't see God. He needs, he needs us to like him so much we cannot see God. You see, in other words, uh, he his main priority was affirmation. I'll tell you what, that's an occupational hazard for a lot of pastors. It is, I think for most pastors. No, first of all, everybody likes to be liked. But it seems that ministers have a, uh, a high incidence of needing to be, find affirmation from the people that they serve. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're putting our need to be affirmed over serving God and his people. So we need to ask, is the pastor, is the overseeing priest motivated by a need for affirmation? Do they need to be liked? Do they need it? Do they feel weak? 
and need a title of authority so they can feel validated? Do they need to be important? Do they know that they're called to shepherd and guide, or do they want to control the lives of others? Do they need to be noticed? And heaven forbid, I don't know where they would have got this idea, but is, a, is someone using ministry as a means to find a secure job? Good luck. Or is it merely a means to promote an ideological agenda? And this can happen on either end of the spectrum of our ideological agenda. But uh, Patrick, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, great Democratic um, uh, representative from uh, New York, once referred to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops as the Democrat Party at prayer. In other words, a political ideology had taken over a religious office. And that can happen on the left, and it can happen on the right as well. And that's what's condemned here, using God as a means to another end. But Jesus offers a corrective to these distortions of leadership. And here it is. Leadership is not about the leader. It is only ever about God and those God has called the priest, the overseer, to serve. That's the point of Jesus' instruction regarding what we call our leaders. He, get, he goes right into, what are you going to call these dudes? What are you going to call these people? How are you going to address them? And we think that that has very little to do with this thing about what is uh, that the corrective about leadership, that leadership is about God and about those, that the leader, the, the, those to whom the leader is sent to serve. So why does Jesus go into a litany of what you can't call your pastor? Now listen to what he says. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father. For you have one Father, and He is in heaven. Ben, have you read this? Yes, I've read this before. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The whole issue here about religious titles isn't about what we call the pastor in charge, but it is to remind the disciples that leadership isn't about the leader. And so to remind us and to get that point home that leadership is not about the leader, Jesus employs a teaching method called rabbinic hyperbole. Rabbis, and, and still to this day teachers do this kind of thing, but one of the teaching methods rabbis would use is that they would make an incredibly outrageous point so that you wouldn't forget, so they'd make the point so extreme you wouldn't forget the underlying point. So when Jesus says, call no one on earth, no, call nobody on earth father. Nobody. Well, that's obviously hyperbole. Because what are you going to call your dad? You know? So what is he saying? He's like, okay, rabbinic hyperbole is like this. I'll give you another good example. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, are you listening to me? Okay. <laughs> if your eye, this sounds gross. If your eye causes you to sin, Coco, I want you to take your finger and gouge it out. Because it's better to go to heaven with only one eye than to be thrown into hell with a whole body that's full of eyes. See, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. Or Jesus goes on to say, she loves it when I do that to her. Uh, she, he goes on to say, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into the kingdom of heaven 
maimed than to go whole into the fires of hell. He's not, look, there were not, after Jesus said that, people weren't plucking out eyes and cutting off hands. There was an exception, a guy named Origen later on in the church's history, but we won't go into what he did. It was extreme, and it was not right, and that's why he's not Saint Origen, probably. So, uh, but anyway, uh, so here's the thing is that Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you these things so that you will understand that leadership is not about the leader. It's about serving God and serving those over whom God has put you to lead. Now, we do need to have a little, um, a little apologetic here there, because there are Christians—now, sometimes— People will refer to me or Keith as Father Ben or Father Keith. And how do we get away with that once Jesus has just said this? Well, first of all, it's not my title. My title is not Father Ben. My, my title is the Reverend Ben Sharp. Please don't call me Reverend. Uh, but, but my title is not Father. That is a term of endearment within the family of God. I don't want people outside of the family of God calling me Father. That's not my title. Nobody here has to call me Father. If you don't think you should, please don't. I'm not asking you to. But it has become a a term of of endearment here. And you know what? It's really sweet. It doesn't make me feel important. It makes me feel feel like I love you all the more. Because in Christ, you are my children. You are my beloved children in Christ. And your children are my grandchildren in Christ. And I like that too. I get to be surrogate granddad every week. I, that's how I, I love you like a father loves his children. I don't, if that's bad, I'm sorry. You know, there are Christian churches who would never want to call their pastor father or certainly not the reverend. But they glow with pride when they can call their pastor doctor. Oh, Dr. Smith, he is so wonderful. Did you hear that sermon? Mm. By the way, guys, that word doctor is just the Latin cognate for teacher. Call no one teacher. Doctor just means teacher. I've known people who have a doctrine, and they want to be called doctor. But, oh, they would never call a preacher father because that's not, you know, that wouldn't be right. That's just inconsistency. I once participated in a wedding at a fundamentalist church of a particular denomination. This is when we were in Alamance County. And you remember where we were. And, uh, and, and they would, oh, they would never call their pastor, probably not the reverend, and certainly, I don't know what, I think they called him brother so-and-so. But here's what happened when you went into brother so-and-so's church. As you entered the vestibule, they didn't have a narthex, they had a vestibule. As you entered the, uh, coming into the church, on the wall there, Large, literally larger than life. I thought I, I said life size in the last service. No, it was bigger than life size. Was a ginormous portrait of the minister and his wife. Now they would never have an icon of Jesus because that's idolatry. But look, here's our pastor and his wife. There might be a problem with that. It might be communicating something that goes against what Jesus is saying here. In one church I read about recently, a pastor is referred to as brother, but a parishioner drives the pastor and his wife to church every Sunday as they sit in the back of a white Mercedes. Brother, that might be off the spirit of this passage. It was the great Puritan commentator, Matthew Henry, who gave the best advice on titles and how it relates to leadership when he said this, For him that is taught in the word to give respect to him that teaches is commendable. 
enough in him that gives it. But for him that teaches to love it, being, being offered respect, to love it and demand it and affect it and to be puffed up with it and to be displeased if it be omitted is sinful and abominable. And instead of teaching, he has need to learn the first lesson in the school of Christ, which is humility. So when it comes to what we address, uh, overseers, senior pastor, priest, whatever you want to call them in the church, I, have, I just I offer this as a guideline. Um, we should all respect one another, so address them with respect. We should all be courteous to one another, so address them with courtesy. Uh, we, we should love one another in the body of Christ, so address, address them with affection. And so whatever that means to you, you know, find, find it in the Bible and use it. Um, you can call me anything, just don't call me late for dinner. But I would ask you, brothers and sisters, and I sincerely mean this, we... Anyone who is an ordained ministry, deacon, priest, or bishop, uh, and we're all, uh, we are all called to ministry, but anyone who is called to representative ministry in the body of Christ, um, I want to tell you something that is a sociological truth that if we don't believe it in North America, believe me, the enemy of our souls believes it and he uses it. Leaders have an enormous effect on the people they lead. And when they fail... It is disastrous, not just for the leader, but for everyone around them. Lisa and I went to Ireland for two weeks this summer. Thanks be to God, we got to do a dream come true for us. And we were in um, three separate pubs. I know it says about that thing about drunkenness in that passage in First uh, Timothy 2. We're, it's not about, it's, that's just where everybody is. They're at the pub. So if you're going to see anybody, you go to the pub. And uh, so we were at three different pubs, and every time the topic of religion came up, in every one of these three villages, and I could name them, but I won't, because this is going out on the web, each one of those village, villages had a story of someone with pastoral care responsibility, an ordained minister in their village, that had abused children, every one of them. And you want to know why Ireland is a post-Christian country now? They might be titularly Catholic, but let me tell you what, it is only skin deep for most of those folks because they have been so disillusioned by their leaders. So listen to what I'm about to say, and please do this. Um, each of your ordained leaders here, and for some reason we have more than anybody should have in a church this size. Uh, it's a God thing, I think. Uh, every time someone is ordained, they get a target painted on their back. The enemy would love to destroy any one of us because it doesn't just affect me or my family, it affects your family and you. The enemy comes at us in several ways. He will come at us, he will attack our character. So pray that we be protected from temptation because he would love to, because there's probably, he's, the first thing that Paul says is a leader must be above reproach. A presbyter, an overseer must be above reproach. We have to be above reproach. He will come after our character. Pray for our character. All of the same temptations that you are like, are, 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 get to you, get to us. Please, please, please pray for our character. Pray for our families. 
The enemy loves to attack. He must manage his household well. He will come after our families. He'll come after their health. He'll come after the peace and unity of our family. He'll come after our family's godliness. He will come after our families. Pray for our families. Please do that. Um, Pray for our souls. Uh, I got to tell you, um, full-time Christian ministry is, uh, is draining and I, my heart just turns to stone sometimes. And I get a rocky, stony heart. And I need, I need God to please soften my heart and make me love Jesus more. Because if I can't do that, I really can't do anything else. Keith is the same way. Jesus, Jim, pray for our spirits. Pray for our health. Uh, the enemy... Uh, we are a psycho, spiritual, physical totality. And so our bodies are a place where the enemy attacks us and would like to cripple us in some way to prevent, prevent us from performing the ministries to, to which we are called. Please pray for your priests and deacons here at Christ Church. Yes, we pray for everybody. But this is why in the prayers of the people, there is an actual petition for bishops and other ministers is because as soon as that bishop laid his hot little hands on my head and ordained me to the priesthood, the enemy put a target on my back. And he did it on Keith, and he's doing it on Jesus, he did it on Deacon Jim as well. We need your prayers, brothers and sisters. Would you please support us that way? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This